Lord, give us insight, give us wisdom. Lord, help us to be teachable from your word by your Holy Spirit. Allow me as your messenger to simply, Lord, faithfully reflect your truth to the hearts of your people. And Lord, to those who may not know you, that there would be conviction, that there would be repentance, Lord, that there would be a renewed passion to glorify you with our lives. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As some of you know by now, um, this past week or so, my, my family and I traveled up to Spokane, Washington to pick my daughter up from Moody Bible Institute. They have a, a Western campus there. Um, we spent a night in Spokane. We went over to Seattle and spent two days in Seattle and uh, enjoyed watching that city. Of course, it was rainy and cold. It was typical Seattle, right? Uh, then we moved, went down to uh, Portland area, Salem in particular. We have some family that lives there, and we spent a few days with them. And one of the things that they enjoy doing is going on hikes. And so they wanted to make sure that uh, we went on a hike, not one that is too long. And there is uh, some history of them taking us on hikes that are just like way, way too long. And so we qualified that, and they found a hike and determined a great place for us to go. Um, but one of the caveats was that the last time they went there on that hike, one of the teenage daughters, Annie, um, encountered a, uh, a cow and was chased by that cow because she was between the cow and the calf. And so they said, listen, when we get there, we don't know. I mean, there's a path for people to walk on, but there's also cows walking around. And sure enough, that morning, it was a beautiful day. We got up and started walking and came around the corner. And my son Adam and Annie were up ahead and... They had stopped, and we slowly caught up to them, and there was a whole bunch of cows and lots of, uh, lots of calves running around, and um, there was a, this cow was close to the path, but not on the path, but was still enough to say, okay, let's walk to the side, and we did walk to the side, and we continued on our, our, our journey and went to a beautiful waterfall, um, spent some time there, came back, and on our way back, as we got to the same location, the path continued on, and there was this cow right in the middle of the path, and everyone had frozen. Well, being the guy that I am, and sometimes you watch TV or listen to things on, on the news or on the radio or on the internet, um, I had determined that I had this nugget of truth um, that would help me that day, and that nugget of truth was, listen, don't show fear. Uh, if you show fear, the animal will respond in kind and might actually uh, end up being kind of ugly. So be assertive, be strong, and go down there, and, and that cow will get out of your way, and you can use your Jedi powers to move that cow and continue on the path. And so I charged ahead um, like the strong hero man that I am. No, that's not the case. But I went down there, and sure enough, the closer I got, the cow moved out of the way, and Everyone kind of slowly came behind us on the side of the path, and we, we got through there. Now, I'm not sharing this story to say, oh, look, I'm a big hero. I'm sharing this story because I actually based my decision on a nugget of truth that I believed to be true, but I had no foundation that it actually was true. It was something that I thought was true. It was something that I heard, but it did motivate me in confidence to move ahead. Foolish confidence, maybe, but confidence nonetheless. Now, the question I have for you this morning is this. What truth moves you to action? What truth moves you to action when faced with fear? 
when trouble, with hopelessness and helplessness. What, what is it that moves you? There's all sorts of ideas out there, and we need to make sure that the truth that moves us is the right truth, is truly the truth, so that we can move in such a way that would honor and please God and certainly would be beneficial for us. And so the answer to that question is what drives through the heart of the book of Nehemiah. Let's read those few verses again that we read just a minute ago. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, talking about a fellow Jew, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. But what are God's people to think when they're going through such trouble and shame? Has God given up on them? Is the glory that was once present there in Jerusalem always to be a thing of the past? Is there any hope at all for God's kingdom to be restored? I mean, they're looking around. They're looking at themselves. So looking at this place called Jerusalem. And it's a horrible situation. It really is hopeless. It really is empty. But I want to say to you what the book of Nehemiah is saying to us today, that God is always faithful to restore his troubled people. He is always faithful. Now, you might look at your life right now and say, yeah, but I'm going through difficult times. I'm going through trial. I'm going through suffering. Is God going to restore me now? Now, I realize that your life may not look the greatest. But remember this, God is at work. And just because you don't see the resolve doesn't mean that there is no resolve. And just because you don't see God at work doesn't mean that he's stopped his work and his thinking and his love for you and the fleshing of that out in the affairs of mankind. And I realize that a statement like I made can come across somewhat as a common Sunday school answer. You know what I'm talking about. You're sitting in Sunday school class or maybe in home group and the teacher or the leader says, all right, here's a question for you. And you have no idea what the answer is. So you say, you know, it's either God, Jesus, the Bible, the church, or maybe God's promises, right? It's just one of those, one of those answers. Oh, yeah, that's right. You've got to trust God's promises. Yeah, we all know that. I know that we know that, but do we know that? It's one thing to say I have the intellectual knowledge of the fact that God keeps his promises, but do I actually live out of my life in such a way that that reality, that truth, is the foundation for my actions? It's the means by which I face the trial that is before me. And friends, that is what the book of Nehemiah is calling us to. 
Nehemiah will press us to ask the question, do we believe that God actually and truly keeps his promises? Do we believe that even when life is sour and trouble is piling on, that God still remembers what he said to us? Can he really be trusted? Does he actually come through for his people? Now this morning the purpose is not necessarily to get into every nook and cranny of the book of Nehemiah. It's to give us a place setting so that we have a a means by which we can see why it is there in the scripture, what it is saying, how it is connected to the whole, and prepare us for the times that are coming as we go into the details of the book and we see the story unfold. And so it's important this morning to think about the context, the setting, uh, to think about the structure, to think about the actual message. But we're going to focus in this morning, first of all, on the context of Nehemiah. And there's really two contexts that are helpful for us this morning that we need to look at. The first one's going to be the historical context, which basically identifies um, where this book sits in a historical framework, where it sits in history. Then there's the literary context. And that's how does this book sit in the Bible? Why is it where it's at? How does it fit with the rest of uh, the Word of God? So let's first of all look at the historical context. And we can divide that into two words, rebellion rebellion, and then return. And we're going to go back a little bit into history of Israel. And there's some things that we need to set up so that we understand why the book of Nehemiah is talking about the things that the book of Nehemiah is talking about. See, God's people were overrun and taken into exile due to their willful rebellion against God. God came to them and said, if you continue down this path, there will be consequences. If you continue to fight against me and to shake your fist at me, there will be consequences. And those consequences came uh, in the form of uh, invasion or, I might say, um, being overtaken by certain peoples. So in, in the, uh, the fall of Israel, also known as Samaria, uh, took place in 722, and it was the Assyrians that came in and captured them. The, the, the Israelites lost their identity, and for the most part, the way that the Assyrians worked is that they intermingled the people um, once they were captive. And so they left some people there, but they would also take some people away, but they would mingle the people that they were dominant over, and they would kind of create this, this syncretistic culture. And so you have people coming from all over different places where the Assyrians had been victorious, and they're repopulating the land. And so the result of that is they're bringing all of their culture, all of the, their religion, all of their customs into this place that would be the northern part of what we understand to be the the promised land. And that's why in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, um, both of them encounter this syncretistic, this this meshing of religions mindset uh, as a religious environment. And so the people that end up being opposed to what's going on in Jerusalem come from that kind of a background. They have a little understanding of what Judaism is about, but they've brought in so many other religious systems. Now, it's it's worth a a qualification here, and that is the Sumerians should not be confused with the um, Samaritans that Jesus encounters. These are the the polytheistic ones. 
The people that Jesus encounters are the monotheistic. Like, for example, the woman at the well. It's a totally different uh, group of people. But um, be mindful at least of that. So there is this, this fall of Israel. Then there's the fall of Judah by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So this is later. You would think that they would have looked north and said, aha, we better get right with God. But that isn't necessarily how things unfold. And there's a buildup going on to this. In 605 B.C., the combined forces of this new building empire, the Babylonians and the Medes, under their crown prince Nebuchadnezzar, come in in a surprise attack against the Assyrians and against Egypt. They were joined together as a front. The Assyrians are wiped out. In fact, if you look in, in the history books, you know, they were the Assyrians and then they were no more. But the Egyptians, they retreated back into Egypt. And so what happened was, as Nebuchadnezzar continued on pursuing the Egyptians, he gets word that his father died. And so he halts their, their pursuit of the Egyptians, and he's going to head back to Babylon so that he can bury his father, and that would be a big deal. But before he does that, he goes to the leader of, the, um, of, of Judah, and he, well, he makes uh, Jehoiakim swear allegiance to Babylon, and he sets him up as king over Judah and over Jerusalem. And that's about the time when the book of Daniel is starting to kind of hit the, the, the storyline of what's taking place. All right? Now, Jehoiakim remained loyal for about three years, and then he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar responded quickly. And the writer of the Chronicle says that Nebuchadnezzar brought Jehoiakim into submission, bound uh, with shackles, and he also carried many of the sacred utensils of the temple with him back to Babylon. So just think, here are all the, these utensils, all these um, tools that were used in the temple are taken into captivity. And you're going to find out, as you read the story here, that as they return back to Jerusalem, what's one of the things that they're bringing with them? They're bringing with them utensils that are supposed to go back into the temple. Okay? There are two more rebellions that take place in Jerusalem under Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. The result is a siege around Jerusalem and eventually a routing of the city. Now, unlike the Assyrians who intermingled their captives, the Babylonians tended to take them and actually repopulate them. Um, and so they took the best, um, the, you know, the doctors and the uh, the, the, the skilled tradesmen and the intellectuals. Again, you think of the story of Daniel. Here are the, the best, the cream of the crop. They're taken back in captivity to Babylon. But they did leave Jerusalem under a local governor to carry out Babylonian rule. So there's a, there's a picture we need to see. And it is, here is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed, has been overrun. Israel to the north was overrun earlier by the Assyrians. The south, now Judah, has been overrun by Babylon. The city's been destroyed. The people now have been split apart. You have a remnant of Jews that actually escaped into Egypt. And so when, there, when these, this, these battles took place between Nebuchadnezzar and the Egyptians, some of, the, uh, some of the, the alliances there, some of the military people, went down into Egypt. That's one group of Jews. Then we have a group of Jews who are intermingled in the north, then you also have a group of Jews who are the elite, the special ones who are taken into uh, Babylon, they're resettled there, and then you have the remnant Jews. 
And the remnant Jews are the ones that, like, I guess we weren't good enough to go to Babylon. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, that's what you're left with. The people who are unskilled, the people who are not intellectual, they're not educated, they're the simple ones. Um, and I don't know that they're necessarily simpletons, but they're just not the ones that are considered to be the cream of the crop. So this, this is the, the scope of the land as we think about what happens then through the, the, the time of history. So that's the rebellion. There was this true rebellion, and God exercised his judgment through Assyria and through Babylon. It was deserved, it was warned about, and it was something that um, God actually accomplished through these different um, empires. Now, we secondly look at the return. There are three returns. All three of them were recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first return is under Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. The goal of that return was to begin the rebuilding of the temple, hopefully to complete it. Um, it starts in the early part of the book of Ezra. You see some of the interaction that takes place there. Um, eventually, they have to stop rebuilding the temple because of the opposition that takes place. There's another return under Ezra. Of course, Ezra is the one who is handling the Word of God, and you'll see that unfolding in the book of Nehemiah. The third return, then, is in 446 under Nehemiah, and the specific purpose, then, is to respond to what he heard um, there uh, from his, his brother about the condition of the people and the condition of the walls. And so uh, this book records the last return from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem where the rebuilding of the walls and the restoration of the people is taking place. And so that's the historical kind of setting. That's the historical context that that gives us at least an understanding of of what is going on here and why it's going on, right? There's also a literary context. Let's just think a little bit about the literary context. Um, We want to consider the significance of, of where it sits in the unfolding story of the Word of God. Um, it appears that both Ezra and Nehemiah at one time were one book. And so this one book recorded the, the three returns from exile in Babylon. Um, but today we have it as a separate account. And so Nehemiah is really the story of that third return. Secondly, it is the, the last narrative or historical book in the Old Testament. I just want you to stop and think about it. The, the last word about what people were actually doing in a narrative sense in telling the story of the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. Okay, so it's the end of the Old Testament. After the end of the Old Testament, there is silence until God breaks into the story 400 years later with the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Yeah, so you're thinking, how does this fit into the story? There's this, there's this tension, and we're going we're to look at that in, in just a little bit. And the third thing is this, that only the prophetical writings of Malachi come later. In fact, they're, they're, they're a contemporary. At the end, chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the last chapter, is what Malachi is, is hammering at in his prophetical message, in particular because of the laxity among the priests, um, the, 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 the lax of, of paying tithes, and in the... Um, the affirmation of intermarriage and even the, the pagan worship that was continuing to go on, go on there at the end of the book. So there's something a little bit there about, about the context that helps us understand a little better why um, this book is written and in what time frame and how it fits into the rest of the story. Now a little bit about the structure of the book. 
Now, it's important to do your best to ascertain the structure of a book because um, that structure is kind of like a skeleton. Uh, in fact, every, every story you read, every novel that you have read has a skeleton. And it's, it basically shows a plot line. It shows these different events that are taking place. And then the meat is put on that skeleton. There is a storyline. There is a skeleton. There is a, a structure to the book of Nehemiah. And if you think of it in those terms as a skeleton, understand this. The life of the body is found in the marrow of the skeleton. And so in order to understand and to ascertain what Nehemiah is about, it's helpful for us then to ascertain the structure of that book. And so we're going to look a little bit this morning at that. But we're looking to answer questions like this. How does the writer organize his thoughts? What does the writer, um, how does the writer tell his story? Why does he include that particular story or that particular information? Now, generally speaking, the book of Nehemiah is considered under two headings. Chapters 1 through 7, the restoring of the walls. Chapter 8 through 13, the restoring of the people. If you have a study Bible, it's probably something like that. A lot of people would, would approach it that way. But to me, that's a little too general. Um, I would want to home in just a little bit more to give a little bit better structure. So I've come up with a, a five-point structure um, just to, to help us walk through this a little, in, in my opinion, a, in a little clearer way. It's not that much more significant, but I think it's helpful to make the distinction here. So, first of all, chapter 1, you have this introduction, the burden of Nehemiah. This is when he hears about the condition of Jerusalem, the people that are in there, the walls that are broken down, the shame and reproach that they are experiencing. And so he turns to God, ultimately, um, in prayer. And then you have the next section, chapter 2 through 7, where... Uh, the, the rebuilding of the walls are taking place. He goes and he, he assesses the situation, and the building begins. Then there's, of course, opposition that takes place. And some of that opposition, some of that trouble, some of the difficulty is not just external, it is also internal. It's the people of God who are behaving badly, just as well as the enemies of the people of God who are behaving badly. And then there is the completion of those walls. But then in chapter 8 through 10, we have the reviving of the people. This is when the word of God is brought out. If you remember from that story, chapter 8, uh, they're saying, bring out the book, bring out the book, bring out the book. They want to hear the word of the Lord. And what happens when they hear the word of the Lord is that they are convicted of their sin, they repent of their sin, and they restore their covenant with God. It's a wonderful, beautiful story. And then we have chapter 11 and 12 where there's the resettling of the families. Not everyone who was there at that point in time can fit into Jerusalem. And so they had to decide who was going to live where and how. And, and uh, that's all chapter 11 and 12. Some inside Jerusalem, some outside Jerusalem. And at the end of that section, the, the, the walls are finished, the people are resettled, and there is this great celebration of dedication of the completion of the walls. Great time of prayer and praise, and celebration. And then we have in the fifth section here, the conclusion, the burden of Nehemiah again, in chapter 13. And his burden is ultimately to keep God's people grounded in God's word and living in obedience to their covenant with him. 
And you're going to see that there's problems that crop up there in chapter 13. Now, on another note, in the book of Nehemiah, there are five chapters where there are lists, long lists. In fact, as we were preparing as, as men, because we're going to team teach this through the summer, as we prepared to, to study this together, we sat down and we just read. And some of those passages that were read was like, how in the world do you pronounce this? And there's like name after name after name after name and place after place after place. There are these lists. What do you do with these lists? I mean, why so many lists in this book? I mean, do, do we just skip them? You know, it's like you come up to a genealogy. You know what I'm talking about. You're reading God's Word, and you come to a genealogy, and you're like, nah, I'm going to skip over that and move to the next thing, right? Well, you know, when it comes to studying God's Word and preaching God's Word, we can't do that. We have to say, why is this here? It's part of the structure. It's part of the story. It's part of the impact of why God has determined to give us this particular story with these particular truths to show us something about his glory and our need of him. So we don't skip them. We do, but we work hard to see why they're included. So that's the structure of Nehemiah. And I'll spend a little bit more time Uh, what I'm calling the message of Nehemiah, the message of Nehemiah. We've seen the setting. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the structure of the book. Now we want to look at the central message of the book. And it's helpful to see the central message as the melodic line of the book. Now some of you who have been to our Simeon Trust training, you know I'm using language that is from that because I know you've been to it. But the melodic line of the book basically is that that theme that, that runs through the book. It's that the melodic line really is, is a song, um, or in a song, is the melody of a repeated set of notes throughout the music. So it's a distinct musical phrase repeated throughout the piece. It's what makes that piece of music that piece of music and recognizes such. And so we're going we're gonna to test it out here. I'm just going to throw some music out there, and you're going to tell me what it is. Da, 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 da. What's that? How do you know that? Because that's the melodic line of the Hallelujah Chorus. What about this one? You know what that is? It's Darth Vader. He's right. You know what? In the story of Star Wars, it is always there when all the bad guys are coming out, right? And it really emphasizes Darth Vader, right? Um, how about this one? Anyone's birthday today? We'll sing to you. No, it's a melodic line. Um, how about this one? Da 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 Right? I feel I sound like animal doing that now, don't I? But right, you yeah right. So it's 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 Beethoven, right? So. The point here is this. There's a melodic line. In that melodic line, there may be melodies, there may be things that kind of go off and around it, but it always goes back to that melodic line. And so when we come to a book of the Bible, we recognize that there is there's a melodic line of that book. And in particular, as we come to the book of Nehemiah, there's different ways you can ascertain what that melodic line is, but one of the things we're going to do here is we're going to look for repeated words, repeated themes, um, that are presented in this book. And there's five words 
that uh, caught my attention that I, I just see uh, repeated throughout this, this story that I think are really important. Some of them are obvious, but uh, some of them hopefully will, will help you consider um, what it is that, that God is saying here. So first of all, uh, let's think of this word remnant, chapter 1, verse 3. This, these are the people that are left in Jerusalem. Now, they're, they're mentioned as the remnant in chapter 1, verse 3, but throughout the book, they're the people of God, right? The people, the people, the people. And, and the, the emphasis here is not just of one man's success. The, the emphasis here is of the people of God being reunited with God and being restored to God. So there's this, this people uh, theme that comes throughout this story. Secondly, there's the word covenant um, and the idea of covenant throughout the book. Um, this is what um, Nehemiah is ultimately appealing to. This is what he will lean on. This is what he uses to encourage the people with. Chapter 1, verse 8, he is appealing to the Mosaic covenant, and that's the if-then covenant. Then in chapter, uh, chapter 9 and verse 8, there, what's brought up there is the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the story uh, that, that is unfolded in, within the story of Nehemiah. Chapter 9, verse 32, God keeps his covenant, we're told. Chapter 9, verse 38, we make a covenant with God. And at the end of the book, Nehemiah is lamenting because the people have desecrated the covenant of the priesthood. So there's this covenant. The word covenant is another word we can say is a promise that God has made. And so there's an appeal in the story. There's a leaning on the promises of God, in particular, the special promises that God gives by virtue of his covenant with his people. And so there's now the word remember. The word remember. And this is, this is kind of a a constant word that seems to be throughout the book in different ways. Chapter 1, verse 8, remember the word or the promise. This is Nehemiah praying to God as he reflects on the condition of the people. Then in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, don't be afraid. This is Nehemiah speaking to the people. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the promise that the Lord has made. Chapter 5, verse 19, Nehemiah is again speaking to God. Remember all that I have done. Chapter 6, verse 14, Nehemiah again speaking to God. Remember, I'll put in parentheses here, your enemies, O God. Because he's, he's, he's saying, God, you know, you're the one that has to do this. You remember these people. And it's not just that the word is mentioned, but the idea is also throughout this book. Chapter 8, they are remembering the word of God. Chapter 9, they're remembering God's faithfulness through the years. Chapter 10 and 11, they're remembering God's covenant. And finally in chapter 13, we find this word remember, 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 remember. Four times here, remember me, oh my God. Nehemiah is asking God to remember him. And so there's this, this idea of remembrance. So we have the people of God. We have this promise that God makes, this covenant that God makes with his people. You have this, this, this urge to remember um, that uh, um, Nehemiah is bringing to the attention of the people. Then, of course, the fourth word, word is God, God himself. God is uh, oftentimes um, a neglected aspect of the story of the, the word of God, but he certainly is a key 
main player in the story here. He is at the center of this book. He is the one who guides. He's the one that protects. He's the one that energizes. He's the one that restores. He's the one that covenants with his people. And he's referred to as the God of heaven. But he's also referred to as the God of steadfast love. Let's just look at this briefly here. Get your Bibles and turn to chapter 1, verse 5. And I want to be careful that I'm not taking anything away um, from what J.D. is doing next week because he'll be dealing with the rest of chapter 1. But I want you to see how God is described here um, in this book. Chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That, that is a loaded verse, isn't it? Talking about the character of God, the nature of God, the responsibility of God's people, and how God interacts with them when they're either they're obedient or disobedient. Now, turn to chapter 9 and verse 32. Chapter 9 and verse 32. Again, this is Nehemiah speaking. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes and priests and prophets, our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. But it goes back to the covenant and it goes back to steadfast love. This is this word hesed. It's a love that is flowing out of God based on a covenant. Okay? And now go to um, chapter 13. Chapter 13, and you'll see it again um, fleshed out here in verse Let's see, verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So God is not only keeping his covenant, but he is also a God who is exercising his love to his people. And Nehemiah is drawing our attention to that as we look at this word, as we study this word, there are these, 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 these nuggets of truth that hold this together. Then, of course, the last word is a name, um, and that is the, the name Nehemiah. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the one uh, whom God uses as the leader, as the, the one who carries the burden, mobilizes the people, uh, directs them, instructs them, guides them. Um, he is a a great servant of God, but he acts on what God has promised in his word. He's not a great leader simply because he has leadership gifts, although he probably did. He's a great leader because he believed the promise that God had made, and he was going to act on that promise. Not only does he act on what God has promised in his word, he directs the people to listen to God's word and to obey it. And he's a man of prayer. He's a man of principle. And he has a fire in his soul that's based on the promises of God. See, it's one thing to believe that God keeps his promises. It's another thing to live your life out of that belief by virtue of your actions, your choices, your decisions. There's some things that 
should burn in our hearts. So as we bring this down to then, you might want to say a melodic line, there's a long one and there's a short one. Here's the long one that you have in your notes at the bottom of the page there. The faithfulness of Israel's covenant God to remember his people by restoring them to himself through the leadership of his chosen vessel, Nehemiah. See, God is always faithful to keep his part of the covenant, to remember his people and to restore them to himself. And he uses, in this case, Nehemiah. The short one is this. God is faithful to restore his troubled people. Now, friends, it's a, it's a big kind of overarching theme of what the book is about. And as we go through each section, each section will be like a, a piece of clothing you have on, on a line that is all hooked to that line. It may look different. It may have a different subject matter, but that theme is traveling all the way through, all the way to the end. God is always faithful to restore his troubled people. So the book of Nehemiah is about the faithfulness of our covenant God, but it is also about being a people of God who are willing to believe and act on God's covenant promises. So in the face of failure, will we believe and act on God's promises? In the face of lingering sinful consequences, do we just say, you know what, I'm not going to believe God anymore? Or do we say, you know what, even in the midst of these consequences, God, I'm going to believe what you say. In the face of rubble and ruin, in the face of discouragement or despair or diminished hopes, will you still believe what God says that it is true, and that it is at work in and through your life. In the face of angry opposition, in the face of the enormous work that needs to be done, in the face of sinful and, and, and selfishness, even in the church, do we give up on God's promises? Do we say nuts to the church and say, I don't want anything more to do with it? Or do we say, God, you are worthy to be praised. Your promises are true. They will not be defiled by you. In the face of spiritual revelation, when your sin is exposed, in the face of quick sinful regression, will you believe and act on what God has promised? So as we go through this book, um, the themes that, that come up are themes that we face. There, there's, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be ridicule, mocking. There's going to be physical intimidation. There's going to be people taking people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ who are taking advantage of you in the midst of that suffering. There's going to be a neglect of the Word of God. There's going to be a, an unwillingness to repent. There's going to be a challenge to say, God, I'm going to covenant with you. See, in Nehemiah, there's a connection between knowing God's word and his promises and renewing our covenant with him in God-centered praise and humble, obedient living. See, that's what God wants from us. God-centered praise and humble, obedient living. 
We have a friend. It's okay. It's learning. Good. Listen, God is always faithful to his covenant. Hear this. But his people may not be. So you're not God. God is consistent. You're not. You fail. You sin. You fall flat on your face. It doesn't have to end there. Restoration is possible. Restoration is desired. So Nehemiah is a wake-up call for us to take our promises before God seriously. So the, the book of Nehemiah forces us to ask ourselves some questions. Does God, excuse me, does God really keep his promises? Now seriously, here's some questions. When our lives are full of hardship and tragedy and pain, can we really expect to say God keeps his promises? When we have been uprooted from our homes because of an invading army that has overrun our country, do his promises still ring true? Now, that may not be the experience that you're living out right now, but there are Christians around the world that's exactly what's happening to them. An invading army is coming, and if they come and they catch you, you're done, you're dead. And you spent all this time building your home and raising your family and investing in a business or running a farm, and now you're running for your life. Is God still worth believing at that point in time? Are his promises still in place? When the world around us is daily and steadily growing in its disdain of God and his followers and his word and his glorious gospel, has he gone back on his promised word? We might be tempted to say, look at the mess that I'm in, my dwindling health, my, my financial uh, finances disappearing, my, my, my family chaos, the, the repeated vocational uncertainty. And you're saying to yourself, is God really coming through for me? Now the question is, what do you mean by that? And is God in his promises doing what you think his promises mean for you? And sometimes the issue is not so much we don't believe in his promises, is that we got his promises all mixed up. We think that he's supposed to do things for us that he never promises that he will do. Friends, please hear this about the story of Nehemiah. It is true that both Israel and Judah have been overrun. They've been scattered and deported to many places. It is true that Jerusalem, once the center or the heart of the Jewish kingdom, is now a ragtag resemblance of what it once was, the mighty, magnificent city of David, the pride of Solomon, the envy of nations, but now only the weak and uneducated and unskilled are left to live in the rubble. What kind of God would abandon his people in such a way? What kind of God would allow his people to endure such suffering? What kind of God would turn his back on all his promises? But it is not all as it seems. God has not abandoned his people. God has not turned his back on them. No, the truth is, God has been very careful to keep his promise. 
He has been faithful when his people have not been faithful. God had warned his people if they continued to rebel against him that they would suffer punishment. That's what the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah are about. Announcing God's judgment because of sinful rebellion, but also reminding Israel and Judah that if they return to him, that he would return to them. So this is the, the comfort part of the book of Isaiah. If you'll listen, if you'll humble yourself, if you repent, if you return to me, I will return to you. That's the very promise that Nehemiah is pointing at in chapter 1. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, he reminds God in his prayer. But if you return to me, I will gather you and restore you to the place. And that takes us all the way back into 2 Samuel 7, where that the place is Jerusalem. And that is what God reminds Judah through the prophet Malachi. Remember, he was the contemporary whose prophecy takes place in conjunction with chapter 13, as I mentioned before. He says, Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, listen to this. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is what the prophet was preaching to the people during Nehemiah's day. Now, friends, there's a challenge now that comes from the book of Nehemiah. It's a challenge. Next slide. There's one big challenge that I want us to see here, and it's kind of a, a top and tail. And top and tail means there's something at the beginning of the book and there's something at the end of the book. And there's a tension here. And here, here's, the, here's the tension that we need to see. Nehemiah begins with a remnant in a broken-down Jerusalem who are in great trouble and shame because of their rebellion against God, which ultimately looks like marrying foreign women and worshiping foreign gods. This was their rebellion. This is what they were doing. And they are now in this broken-down Jerusalem. And the walls of the city are rebuilt. The people are restored to God. But Nehemiah ends in chapter 13 with a remnant in a rebuilt Jerusalem who are in great trouble and shame because of their rebellion against God, which looks like marrying foreign women and worshiping foreign gods. Don't you want to just jump in there and scream and say, what are you guys doing? How privileged you are to have been brought back, to have been restored, to have the Word of God once again brought back into your community, into your context, into your lives, and, and to be able to be reconciled to Him that even at the end of the story here, the people are back to doing the things that caused God to bring judgment on His people. Now, friends, the Bible is rarely like a Disney movie that ends happily ever after. See, the tension here is that, is that at the end of this book, it's like, okay, there's been resolved, but now they're back. What, what's up with that? Is that what I am left with? And then all of a sudden, silence, you know, crickets, crickets, crickets. I just... Look how quickly God's people turn away from God and to their sin and to their idolatry. 
the Old Testament really ends on a downer. But it's a reminder that the people of God living in the kingdom of God desperately need a leader, a servant of God to lead and to guide them, to be faithful to their God. As we've been going through 2 Samuel, we realize that that ultimate leader is David in the story, in the human story of what's happening. He rises up to be that king who is to be the leader of the people. But we know that there's a trajectory there that he is a foreshadowing of a, a greater king, that is Jesus Christ. In the book of Nehemiah, God uses the man, Nehemiah, to be that leader. Now, he is not, I want to say, a type of Christ or a picture of that, I don't think, but he certainly is a leader who is shepherding the people, who is guiding them. But it's a reminder that the people of God today, we need a shepherd. And we need a man who has been chosen by God to be that shepherd, a leader and a king par excellence. Without him, we are left to wander and will do what is right in our own eyes. And of course, that man is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the leader that we need. And it's just, I think, interesting in the story how in chapter 13 what happens is Nehemiah leaves you know, Jerusalem and the people under the care of others goes back to Babylon. And it's while he's gone that the world turns upside down again. And he comes back and he straightens it out as best he can. And so he's like, oh, God, remember the work that I've done. It's really a tough ending to a book. But that's what I love about God's Word. It's real. It's not Disney. These are heart issues. These, these are people. And friends, the prophet Malachi points us to the same reality in chapter 3 of his prophecy. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. Now, prophetically speaking, I'll interpret that for you. That's John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, that would be Christ, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, that's another statement about Christ himself, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, wait a second. The, the narrative story ends on a downer, but here's Malachi, and Malachi is saying, listen, there's still someone coming. He's the messenger of the covenant. And when he comes, he is going to enter the temple, and he is going to come. Of course, Christ is that messenger and he would be the one proclaiming the new covenant, which both Ezekiel and Jeremiah speak of. We began our services in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, and verse 31, where it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Both of those groups coming together. And this is the very same new covenant that Jesus spoke about when he sat with his disciples in the upper room and established the Lord's Supper, Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, God has only one plan of salvation in all of human history, and that plan is the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of the Old Testament era were saved by looking forward in faith to his coming. The people who, have, who are living since his coming are saved by looking back in faith to Christ who, is, who has already come. But all are saved by faith in Christ. Friends, this, this connection, this theme, this, this flow is so beautiful. It's so helpful to remember. Now, some final questions to, to consider. These are not my concluding thoughts, but just some final questions to consider. How well-versed are you concerning God's covenant promises to you? Do you know what they are? It's hard to believe God's promises when you don't know which promises apply to you. <laughs> In what ways are you wrestling with God's promises? Are you afraid or fearful to do what he's promised you to do? Are you ashamed of your behavior and so you don't believe that God can forgive you because of the awful things that you've done? Are you unwilling to let go of your pride and let him be in control of your life? Third question here, are you being faithful as a follower of Christ to be a covenant keeper? That for you, you care about obedience. That for you, as a child of God, you're careful to be faithful to him. That you delight in doing what honors his name and his covenant. Those are going to be wrestling matches and tensions that we're going to see unfold as we go through this book. Now some final concluding thoughts. Just three words I want to leave you with. Number one is motivation. And I want to say it from the outset, you notice um, that that we're preaching through the book of Nehemiah and we do not have a building program going on right now. And if we did have a building program, I wouldn't want to preach through Nehemiah, I think, because that would be a distraction and I'd be tempted to make it say things that it's not supposed to be saying. The motivation for us is to say that God has spoken to us from all of his word. Now, let's see what he has to say to us from the book of Nehemiah. And you can be sure that it will be timely because God's word is always relevant. So I want you to ask, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider your motive and that your motive will be sitting under the teaching of God, reading God's word, studying the book of Nehemiah to learn, to grow in the Lord, to be convicted of sin, both known and unknown, to see God with greater awe and appreciation and so to praise him and so on and so forth. Motivation. Be motivated as we go through this book. Secondly, preparation. How can you get the most from this study in Nehemiah? I'm just going to rattle some things off. They're pretty obvious, but I think they'll be helpful. Read the whole book in one setting at least two times. Yes, every word, every name. Now, if you, if you really want to kind of get lazy on it, no, that's helpful, is you can, you can listen to it. And uh, esvbible.org, I think you can listen to it, and you can hear them pronounce the names correctly. Well, at least we're assuming they're correctly, right? Probably more correctly than any of you or I will, will say them. Um, right? But read it at least a couple of times. Get, get the scope of what's going on so you can see the, the individual sections. Secondly, read the passage 
we will be expounding every week in preparation. So as J.D. speaks next week, he's going to finish up the rest of chapter 1, and we'll put together a list so you can be prepared to do that. But take your time. Do your own study in preparation for that preaching moment. As you do that, look for repeated words, themes, and ideas. Look at the big picture with the melodic line and see how it fits together. Seek to grasp the context of each passage, what's saying before and what's going after that would help you understand that passage. Pray for wisdom, pray for insight, pray for conviction. Pray each week that the man who will be opening up God's Word, um, that, that, that God will, will, will teach him and mold him and shape him, that he will reflect God's truth. I think there's, there's seven of us that are going to be working together as a team to, to preach through the book of Nehemiah. I'm really excited about this, guys. Not just because I'm really excited. I'm, I'm thrilled about the privilege of leading men in the the exposition of God's Word for the people of God. I'm excited. I want you to pray. And some guys, it's going to be the first time they might get up here and be a little bit nervous and struggling and all that kind of stuff. You know what? Pray for them. And you know what? Even if someone's struggling, God is still going to speak through them. Right? If you can speak through a donkey, you can fill in the blank. Well, the reality is these guys are not... They're not, they're not just kind of throwing something together. They're working hard at this. They already have, and I'm excited for what he's going to do. So be prepared. The third thing is this, application. Allow God freedom to rule and reign in your heart. In other words, be teachable, be humble, be honest. Believe the promise that God is always faithful to restore his troubled people. Lord, help us today. We have considered a lot of information. But Lord, I ask that you would help us to rest on the beauty of who you are. And that even in chapter one, as Nehemiah reflects on the covenant that you made with Moses, that he appeals to you by virtue of the fact that you are the God who redeems his people. And Lord, that's what you've done with us. By virtue of that new covenant, by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for us, Lord, we are privileged to be part of that family, to be part of, of that, that collective called your church. And Lord, it's because of what you have done. And this morning as we celebrate the Lord's table, as we consider uh, that what you did on the cross was the, the apex, the fulfillment of, of all these images, all these hopes, all these longings, and these promises, Lord, being fulfilled and, I would say, ratified at the cross by virtue of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are in amazement. But, Lord, we're thankful. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty of the gospel and the importance of the gospel. And we ask, Lord, for renewal, for strength, for fresh vigor and hope, and, Lord, for a desire to know your promises so we can live by them. In your precious name, amen.